0: Father in heaven, I pray for my brothers who stand today saying, God, I, I need you. I need an extra measure of your grace. I need your strength. I need your power. And God, I confess to you uh, that I cannot accomplish it alone. So God, would you move? Would you empower and you strengthen? And may your might be upon them. May greater is he that sent us be than he that is in the world. And may You meet their needs according to Your riches and glory through Christ Jesus. And I pray that power, that peace, and that strength upon them this day for Your glory. And may You redeem their situations for Your honor. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, we're in the book of 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings chapter 4. Uh, and I'm sure some of you are surprised to hear me say that because we've been in Mark for over a year, other than little detours that we took. And so we're in a new book for just a little bit. We're just going to do about a four week series as we look, uh, at the, at Elisha and Elijah. And so, uh, today the sermon title is It Is Well. We just sang that song, It Is Well. And It Is Well, probably the best way to translate it into our vernacular today is, God, I believe in you and I accept your will. God, I believe in you and I accept your will. It doesn't mean everything's great. (laughs) You know, that's not the language that we use anymore. Uh, matter of fact, this term right here is found in the old King James Version in uh, the book of 2 Kings chapter 4, the book that we're about to study. And uh, there's a song, obviously, that we sang earlier, earlier by Horatio Spafford. And I've told this story before, but I think it bears repeating uh Spafford was a businessman uh, back about 150 years ago in Chicago, and uh, he was a good friend of D.L. Moody's, and Moody was preaching revivals over in London, and he had invited him to come, and so he decided to, to make a vacation of it and take his entire family. So they were leaving from Chicago to New York. When he got to New York, he got word that, that a business emergency had happened, so he went back, sent his wife and his four girls on uh, across the Atlantic toward London, and uh, unfortunately on their journey there they collided with a ship and uh, over 250 people died and four of those were his daughters and so he got the message of what occurred and he got a telegraph that said saved alone from his wife so he jumped on the ship took off and he told the captain when i get to, we get to that spot let me know and so it was at night and the captain came out and said we're about a mile from where the accident would have occurred and so he looked out over the ocean and these words came to his mind, and these words came uh, from this this book right here, from Second Kings chapter four. And uh, in the Old English, it says the first time the Shunammite woman makes this pronouncement, she she says, "It shall be well." This is after her son has died. And the second time she says, "It is well." And what does it mean for it to be well for us today? Well, I'll tell you this: it's the def- it's the difference between resignation. And acceptance. Resignation and acceptance. When we say resignation, what are we talking about? Resignation is this. It says, I simply surrender to fate. Nothing I can do. This is my fate." But acceptance is this. It's surrender to God. Resignation says, I quit. Nothing else I can do. I prayed before. I tried. There's nothing left that I could possibly do. I just quit. But acceptance says, God, whatever comes my way, I will trust you. Whatever comes my way, God, I'm going to trust it. Doesn't mean I'm going to like it. it doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It doesn't even mean I know what to do. Resignation says there's no hope. There's no possible hope. This is the end. It's fatalistic. But acceptance is I know God is able in spite of my circumstances. Resignation says, what a waste. I completely wasted my time. I completely wasted my life. Can't believe I was in that relationship. Can't believe I took that job. Can't believe this is happening. Can't believe I spent the time with my kids. I can't believe all da-da-da-da-da-da. And you say, this was just a waste of my time. But acceptance says, God, how do you want to redeem this? How do you want to use this in my life? How do you want to grow me? Resignation says, I'm alone. But acceptance says, God, I'm yours. Though I may feel alone, I trust you. I believe in you. Here's the question. Do you find yourself in a spirit of resignation or acceptance? You know, Oswald Chambers, I quote this as much as any quote I've ever made. But he said, faith is this. It's doing everything that you honestly and ethically can and trusting the rest of God. Resignation just says, I quit. Resignation says, God, you do it. I ain't doing nothing. I'll just sit here. That's resignation. Acceptance is, God, I will do what I can. You, you show me. You lead. But, God, I, I will not compromise my values and I'll do whatever you say. I'm open. Lead me. But I will trust you with what I do not know and what I cannot do. So are you accepting where God has you today? Or are you simply resigning you know what's interesting to me is uh, we're going to look at a, the miracle of resurrection. We talked about it last week. The resurrection. It's where we put our hope and our faith. It's not just that Jesus died on the cross, but that He was resurrected on the third day. That's where the real power comes for our living today. And what's amazing is, uh, as I looked and I studied resurrections throughout the Bible, and there are several that occur, there's a really unique observation that kind of jumped out at me. Matter of fact, there's a verse in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 35, that goes like this. It says, "'Women received their dead as they were raised to life again.'" Women received their dead. And I just thought that was, that was an interesting passage. Why did he say, why did the author of Hebrews say, women received their dead? You know why? If you go back and look at almost every instance of any resurrection that happens in the Bible, women are always involved. Women are always a huge part of it. And in many of the instances, not the one we're looking at today, they are widows. And some of them are even outside of the faith. They're not even Jews. And it's interesting to me that God continually uses his biggest miracle, the resurrection. Now, obviously, there are other miracles. There are other great miracles in the Bible. You know, the blind to see, the lepers are healed, the deaf are able to uh, speak and hear, the lame are able to walk. Those are great miracles. But, I mean, bringing people back from the dead. I mean, that's the big one, okay? That's the really, really big one. I mean, that's the one that we just go... I don't see that happening. That's just, that's crazy. That's the one we look at and we just, we struggle with. And virtually every time it happens, women are involved. Now, why is that important today? You're sitting there and you go. I'm a woman. I don't know that I like your tone right now. (laughs) I'll tell you why. Because you know who the prophets were? They were men. You know who the priests were? They were men. You know who the leaders were? They were the men. You know who was in power? The men. Women couldn't vote. Their testimony wasn't admissible in a court of law. They were marginalized. And if you wanted to really be marginalized, don't have a husband. Be a widow. You had no rights. People could take advantage of you and there was nothing you could do about it. And God chooses to do His greatest miracles through women, often through widows. It's easy for us to say, and maybe you're thinking, maybe you're here today. And you think, um, you know, I'm, I'm a man or I'm a woman and I'm alone. How's God going to use me? Sometimes I, I talk to people like that. And, I, and, and, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll hear this, you know, well, I, uh, you know, I, I'd come, but, and I'd get more involved, but, you know, my husband or my wife, matter of fact, I talked to a guy last night. My, my wife, she just, you know, she's not really there. And so I just really struggle even coming by myself or even doing anything. Sometimes I'll hear women say, well, you know, I, my husband, you know he he's not going to come, or or I'm single, and you know so it's just it's really hard. And I don't I don't know how's God going to use me. And isn't it great that God keeps doing the greatest miracles through the people who think, or maybe even sometimes our culture thinks, I don't know what they're going to be able to. do. What can they do? Maybe you think that today. Maybe you're married, and you just think, you know. Wish my husband, God bless his heart. Wish my wife. Can I just tell you this? Sometimes our focus can be so much on the other person that we forget what is God calling us to be. If you go to First Corinthians seven, Paul goes to great lengths to tell, hey, you know, what? even if your husband is not a believer or your spouse is not a believer, you just be faithful. Your job's not to kick him in the head, okay? Your job's to pray for him and to live an exemplary life that draws people to Christ. And I love that that 's what these women i love that that 's what this woman does right here she 's actually a married woman, but her husband is probably not some great man of faith and I love to see how God uses her we just the children just did a great job reading this story, and uh, I want us to look at it again, if you would, Second kings chapter four, beginning with verse eight, and one day Elisha went to Shunam, a prominent woman who lived there, persuaded him to eat some food. So whenever he passed by, he stopped there to eat. And then she said to her husband, I know uh, that the one who passes by here is a holy man of God. It's interesting. Every time she responds to Elisha, she never calls Elisha by his name. She never says Elisha, the prophet. She always says that man of God, that holy man of God. Every time she makes a reference to him, we see that she's very hospitable. We see that she's discerning about who he is. As a matter of fact, we'll look in just a moment. We're going to see the story, uh, or we're going to see another character included, Gehazi or Gehazi, <clears throat> depending on where you're from in uh, in the United States. Um, his servant or his assistant is not someone that is she that she respects. Is not someone that she discerns has the right heart. And we know in the next chapter, uh, that he'll be exposed as someone who wants to profiteer, uh, from Elisha and from, uh, his works. But she's discerning and she's respectful and she's generous. She says, let's make him a small room upstairs and put a bed up there and a table and a chair and a lamp for him. And whenever he comes, he can stay there. And one day he came there and stopped and went down to the room upstairs to lie down. And he ordered his attendant, Gehazi, Call this Shunammite woman. And so he called her, and she stood before him. And then he said to Gehazi, Say to her, look, you've gone to all this trouble for us. We can't, and what, what can we do for you? Can we speak on your behalf to the king or the commander of the army? Uh, Elijah says, Look, you've been so good to us, you've been so helpful. You've done so much. I, I want to help you. I'm sure he was used to, uh, since he was the guy who spoke for God. Since he was the guy who had God had used to perform miracles. I'm sure people were always trying to help and trying to do something, trying to get something. But that's not who she is. And she answered and said, "I'm living among my own people." Basically, she said, "I'm content. I've got everything I need. I live here with my family. My needs are met. There's nothing I need." She has no agenda. You know how that refreshing is? Don't you love it when you connect with somebody and they don't have an agenda? We all do. And certainly, Elisha is impressed. He's encouraged. So she asked, then what should be done for her? And Gehazi answered, well, she has no son and her husband is old. That's a big deal. There's no progeny. Your name's not going to be carried on. But if that's not quite enough in this culture, it's also, as we've talked about before, your social security program. This is your retirement. There's not a bank. There's not an IRA system at the time. You have children and you hope you have some good sons who can provide for you. And she's got none. And God says, you know, what you wouldn't even imagine or hope for, I want to give to you. Call call her, Elisha said. So Gehazi calls her and she stood in the doorway and Elisha said, all this time next year you will have a son in your arms. And she said, No, my Lord, man of God, do not deceive your servant. The woman conceived and gave birth to a son, and at the same time the following year, as Elisha had promised her. And the child grew up one day and went out to his father and the harvesters, and suddenly he complained to his father, My head, my head! And his father told his servant, Carry him to his mother. Now, it wasn't uncommon in that day and age, and the heat, particularly for the young or for the old, uh, to have sunstrokes or to at least become overheated. And the father guesses this is what's happened. He said, Tear it, carry him and take him to his mother. And so the child sat on her lap until noon and then died. Then she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut him in and left. She summoned her husband and said, please send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys so I can hurry to the man of God and then come back. But he said, why go to him today? It's neither new new moon or the Sabbath. He goes, why are you going to see the the, the preacher? Why are you going to see the pastor? It's not Sunday. It's not worship day. It's the the, the festival day. It's not a day of worship. Why are you going? What's the deal here? And she goes, what? In the old English, it said, it shall be well. She says, everything is all right. It shall be well well. She believes it. She's going to be well now and it'll be well in the life to come. And let me say this. There's just a moment. Uh, this, is, this is Ron inserting his opinion in, so I'm conjecturing. So uh, don't write this down and call it divine scripture by any means or in totally a, even inspired. But you know why I think that she doesn't tell her husband? I mean, he obviously goes to Sabbath worship with her. But, um, it's obvious that she's more spiritually attuned. She's more spiritually sensitive. And that's often the way it is in families today. I know, and a lot of times we get mad and we bash on the men and, you know, I, I, and I, I hope men are spiritually leading home. I hope that's happening. But let me say this. You know what? Ladies, and if it's your husband, uh, if it's your wife that's in this position, you just do what you can. You're responsible for your faith. God has commissioned you and put you in charge uh, of your children at home for the most part. And you do what you can. And and you use discernment and you use wisdom and you be respectful to your husband. But don't just say, he's supposed to be doing everything. I I don't see that in Scripture, by the way. I don't ever see that in Scripture. I, I, I know that men are supposed to lead, but it never is a license for us to just cop an attitude and quit. That's not what this lady does. You know what I think she knows? I think she knows her husband is so doggone logical. Now, I'm going to make a blanket statement, and please don't send me an email, um, because I know I'm stereotyping, and I know it's not this way in every case, but usually when there's a couple, the man is the more logical and the woman is more sensitive. I know some of you can stand up and give a testimony. Uh, Thank you. God bless you. But I'm just saying usually... The man's a little more logical. And so, you know what I think this man probably would have said? If she said, our son is, our son is dying. I think he would have said, you know what? Let's, let's get things ready. Let's call our family. Let's call our friends. Let's, let's take care of this. And I think he would have said, you're not going out there getting him. There's no need for that. That's not logical. He's dead. He's gone. So don't, don't do that. I think he would have told her not to go. And I think she knows this, and she doesn't want to get an argument. She feels like this is something she's being led to do. She's respectful to him, but she goes with what God is leading her to do. And so the Bible says that she said, everything shall be well. Everything is all right. And then she saddled the donkey and said to her servant, hurry, don't slow the pace for me unless I tell you. So she set out and went to the man of God at Mount Carmel. And when the man of God saw her at a distance, he said to his attendant, Gehazi, look, here's the Shunammite woman. Run out to meet her and ask, are you all right? Is your husband all right? Is your son all right? And she answers, it is well. She answers, everything's all right. In the old King James, it says, it is well. Now, one of the reasons she does that is because I think she discerns that Gehazi, is not a spiritually intuitive guy. I think she discerns that and she also knows, you know what, God has given me this promise and this gift and he pronounced it through the prophet Elisha. And that's where I'm going. And so she says, it is well. And when she came up to the man of God at the mountain, she clung to his feet and Gehazi, being the spiritually sensitive guy that he was, came to push her away. But the man of God says, leave her alone. She's in severe anguish and the Lord has hidden it from me. He hasn't told me. And then she said, did I ask the Lord for a son? Didn't I say, do not deceive me? So Elisha said to Gehazi, tuck your mantle under your belt, take my staff with you and go. And if you meet anyone, don't stop to greet him. And if a man greets you, don't answer him. Then place my staff on the boy's face. And the boy's mother said to Elisha, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So he got up and followed her. And Gehazi went ahead of them and placed the staff on the boy's face. But there was no sound or sign of life. So he went back to meet Elisha and told him, The boy didn't wake. And when Elisha got to the house, he discovered the boy lying dead on his bed. So he went in and closed the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the boy and put his mouth to mouth and his eye to eye and his hand to his hand. that's an interesting picture that you see there. And there are some liberal scholars that have said what happened here is Elisha went back and he did CPR before CPR was cool. Thousands of years before anybody had heard of it. Well, there's just one little problem. You know how far Mount Carmel is away from the Shunam? About 20 miles on a donkey. I don't know. My dad used to have a donkey. And we had some horse and we had a donkey. Can I tell you? You'd rather ride the horse. Okay? And if you ever have a race, you want to be on the horse. Okay? It's not comfortable. They're not fast. So if I could get there in two, two hours on a good horse, you can make it four for a good donkey. Okay, so we're talking about a four to six hour transition period. CPR ain't going to help at this point, all right? So this is, he's dead. The body is cold. And Elisha, God instructs Elisha to put his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his hands, his hands on his hands. And do you see the foreshadowing of Christ upon the cross? As he stretched out his arms and he gave life to us, The Bible says in 2 Corinthians that he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Elisha spreads out upon this boy, and he absorbs the death, just as Christ absorbed our sin and breathed life into us spiritually. So is the picture of what Elisha is doing right here. And the Bible says, and while he bent down over him, the boy's flesh became warm. And Elisha got up and went to the house and paced back and forth. And then he went back up and bent down over him again. And the boy sneezed or convulsed seven times and opened his eyes. And Elisha called Gehazi and said, call the Shunammite woman. He called her and she came. And then Elisha said, pick up your son. And she fell at his feet. And bowed to the ground. And that bow and it is a posture of worship. And I don't believe Elisha was allowing her to worship him. I believe she worshipped Yahweh. And she picked up her son and left. So we see this this woman in this position who says it shall be well, it is well. We see in the good times, we see what her character is. And it's notable. We see that she was hospitable. We see that she was discerning. She knew the difference between the man of God and the hired hand, the man who was doing it for the money, we see the respect that she shows, the generosity, no agenda, but this is what God is leading me to do, and that she was content with what God had given her. But when hard times come, we see that she was faithful. she kept believing in the promise. "I will do everything that I can and trust God with what I can't." She was determined. She was wise. She didn't stop and get in an argument with her husband. She didn't stop and have an argument with Gehazi. She moved forward. She was focused. She was confident. She was persistent. And she believed. She believed. And we look at this story. And we're pretty ethnocentric, by the way, today. We look at this story and we go, yeah, that was really, really great. All those things that happened in the Bible. We hear stories of things going on and. Asia and South America and Africa in particular, and we hear about miracles, and we go, yeah, well, maybe that happens, maybe not. And, you know, we really get into this ethnocentric, particularly as men, you know, I don't think things like that happen. Those really don't happen. It just doesn't make logical sense to me. Can I tell you about a logical guy named Craig Keener? If you think you, you really... ...or a studier and you really want to study miracles, I I challenge you to read his book on miracles. Craig Keener. He is a boring, nerdy, white American guy teaching at Asbury Seminary. Just tremendously brilliant mind. I talked to him on the phone. He's as boring as you can get. And uh, you hate his class. Uh, But he decided to go to Africa and he goes to like six or seven countries to study the miracles that are coming on. And again, this is a guy who is highly, highly educated. He's got multiple degrees, actually. And he lives to study. As a matter of fact, I asked him one time, would you come speak? He goes, I'm really not a speaker. um," He goes, I I write books. And he he does. And he goes over there and he writes two volumes. I don't even know, most of us haven't even read two volumes in our life. He writes two volumes of material that he witnesses and he observes. And he comes back and he puts it into one volume. Because if you're a real Ph.D. nerd, that's what you do. You come back and you put it in two volumes into one volume. And he gives an account. And this blows our minds. I'm going to tell you this and for men you'll go, oh, whatever. He gives an account of resurrections. Of people who were dead and came back to life. Now, we just separated the believers from the unbelievers right there. And again, we're so ethnocentric that we're thinking... Whatever. Whatever. And you know why we don't see miracles? That attitude right there. That, that spirit. Because we now we're in control. We're logical. We got it down. Life's good. We got the power. It's, it's interesting. You know who we didn't see miracles with? We never see the high priest performing miracles, do we? Never see the, never see it happening with the priest. We never see it happening with the kings. It's always happening with the marginalized those who put their hope and trust in the only place they can and believe in a resurrection. Pretty miraculous when you think about it. It's pretty indicting upon us. Again, if you really feel challenged, try try reading that book. And again, it's from a purely academic standpoint, from a very academic guy. The truth of it is, is... We don't believe in resurrections today. Can I just be frank with you? I'm the preacher, and I struggle saying that. I do. I mean, I see God resurrect marriages, relationships, people who are extremely distant from each other. I've seen God heal people. But man, resurrections. Gee. And let me say this it usually doesn't happen. That's why it's called a miracle. It almost never happens. And I don't want you to get stuck on that. But I want you to know it's the same God. It's the same powerful God. Back then it is today. And He still does miracles today. But most of us are like the husband. Where are you going today? It ain't church day. What are you going up there for? Most of us are like Gehazi. Get Get away. Get away. This is a holy man of God. Get away. Do you you have an appointment? Nope. And you're not stopping me. She believed. And then she was grateful when the miracle happened. And she was honoring and she was worshipful. It was interesting to me. Uh, Another guy, another scholar. uh, His name is uh, Rodney Stark. Rodney Stark was a famous sociologist who... Did the, uh, the most extensive work on why, in the first three to four hundred years, uh, the first three to four centuries? Excuse me, the first four centuries, did Christianity simply explode? And he was an agnostic when he started his work on this. He goes, "Why in the world did this thing just explode?" And most conservative estimates said that ten percent of the known world became believing Christians. And, you know, the most uh, liberal estimates are 55%. So somewhere between 10 and 55%. So you could probably say 25%. somewhere. How did one in four people come from a religion that didn't exist, from a guy who got crucified on a cross and his initial followers scattered, and they were mostly uneducated and ignorant men, except for a few, but then later on we start seeing professionals come in by the droves. How did that happen? And Stark said, as a sociologist, he went back and studied, and he said, you know, one of the primary reasons, he said there were many, he said, but one of the biggest reasons I believe it happened, he said, it was during the plague. During the plague, when it came and it began to just wipe people out, he said, people that were there to the city, they left. Those that were not infected, they left, and they spread to the hills. They left their family, they left their wife, their children, and they got away from it. Except for... The Christians. The Christians were the only ones that stayed. And you know who most of the Christians were that stayed? There were women. Most of them were women that stayed. And you know what they did? Though many of them couldn't write, though many of them couldn't read, they ministered to those who were dying. And they helped those who were in fact their own and even the, quote, pagans. And so when people got better when the people came back guess what they thought was real they thought we want a faith like that that would literally give your life for people you didn't even know that well that didn't run in the fear of death you know why they had that hope because of the resurrection because of the resurrection of christ and because they believed that though i die i will be resurrected into new life again and when you don't fear death, when you really believe the resurrection, when you really believe your best life is yet to come, that God's going to create a new earth and it's going to be like no other. Your greatest dreams are going to be accomplished. And you're going to live in, in joy unspeakable that God has promised. Then you're not so worried about the things of life. When death comes, you may still be afraid, but you say, you know what? I know there's something better to come. So their hope and their faith in the resurrection allow them to have a faith like that. It reminds me of Martin Luther King Jr. who said, Hey, faith is the first step you take even when you can't see the staircase. It's the first step you take. Martin Luther King Jr. also said this, Hey, next time fear knocks at the door, faith is what opens the door and says, there ain't nobody home. Here's your question today. Are you resigned to say, God, whatever comes, that's my fate. Or are you accepting and saying, God, I will do everything I honestly and ethically can, and I will trust you with what I can. And I believe in the resurrection. I believe that you still resurrect marriages. I still, you believe, resurrect families, uh, children. Finances, I believe it. And even if you don't, I'll still trust you. And I will say, it is well. It shall be well. So God uses to redeem it in my life. Redeem these circumstances. Use my pain. Use my suffering. I believe and I accept. It's not what I want. It's not what I've signed up for. And it's it's difficult. But I believe. Use me. Use my situation. Let's pray. Father, thank you that while we were still sinners, you died for us. And God, I pray for those who don't know you today, that you would draw them to know you as Lord and Savior. God, I pray, that, Lord, for those who are struggling today, that you would let them know that it shall be well. And Lord, if there's one who doesn't know you, I pray that you'd draw them by the power of your Spirit today. That they would come and they'd say, Jesus, I give you my life, I believe. I recognize I'm a sinner and I cannot save myself and I commit myself to you. Lord, help those of us who find ourselves so logical that we sometimes find ourselves without faith. Let us know that our hope and our rest is in the resurrection. And that God, you're still the same God who wants to move today. Who wants to resurrect lives today. Begin with us.